Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a sports nutrition researcher. I'm a professor, exercise physiologist, uh, former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a coach. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run Strength Guild and a bunch of other stuff. Yes, this is Dr. Ryan Smith. I'm a uh, chiropractor. I specialize in treating weight training uh, injuries, and I practice in Columbus, Ohio. I'm also an advisor for Elite FPS. All right. Okay, everyone, we're going to start with uh, listener mail, uh, and this one's mostly for for Coach Stevens, I think, but uh, certainly Dr. Smith, you're welcome to join in on this one. And then I've got two little news tidbits, and then we're going to get to uh, Ryan's uh, background and story. Uh, this first one, uh, an old friend of mine, I'll leave anonymous, he says, I know we've been spoken for a little bit um, but you allowed me to be on the Iron Radio podcast in the past, which I still listen to each week. Keep up the great work. Uh, but I wanted to touch base because uh, I didn't see it at the Arnold this year, etc. And I'd like your opinion on this. Now, if I can set this up, uh, this listener, he is a certified strength conditioning specialist. So he's an educated guy. Uh, and he just wants, I think, so professional banter back and forth. But I think it could be instructive for, for listeners as well. My oldest son, who is eight, made it uh, on a very good travel baseball team this year. Uh, the coach is insistent on the players performing all of these band exercises for strengthening, specifically to assist in the arm maintenance and strengthening component. Uh, I'm of the opinion that at eight years old, he's getting enough resistance with his swimming and his uh, travel basketball teams. I think he's on more than one here. Um, more importantly, I'm concerned that this additionally could do some harm. I have not checked the NSCA's website on this yet, but I wanted your thoughts as I was expecting this type of training for when they're a little closer to maybe 13 or 14 years old. Uh, best regards. So, Phil, what do you think about this? Is Are his athletic endeavors, again, eight years old, is it enough for him to build sort of that, that base of coordination and agility and all that stuff? Uh, what do you think about the, the bands? Would you prefer him doing some resistance work? What eight years think? old? Eight. Uh, yeah, what I'm seeing more and more now, and they're, they're having talks here at the university and stuff, and you're finally getting coaches coming in, and you're seeing the baseball coaches are pushing for these kids to start strength training at a younger age mm-hmm. because um, it's leading to less injuries. It's leading to less Tommy John's disease. It's leading to where you know Tommy John's doesn't even happen. Um, again, now this is <laughs> very smart progressive strength training. Which, yeah, bands might be a, a stepping stone to get them started on it. You know, it's starting very light and learning correct form um, and, and building the tissue and the, and the uh, you know, joint structure to handle the seasons that are going to come ahead. I think the other biggest thing, you know, I'm dealing with at least one kid right now who's probably just going to skip high school and, and has a chance to go straight to the game uh, is being a smart parent. And especially if you have a pitcher or something like that and like watching pitch count and things like that and not letting coaches 
Um, yeah, there's a there's a real issue at the little league level and high school level of, of these coaches wanting to be. I want the best high school pitcher in the world. Well, that's that's great, but that doesn't lead to college and, and the majors sometimes when you wear them out before they're 18 years old. So, but yeah, I'm seeing more and more that you know strength training aids these kids. It actually leads to less injury on the field um, and things like that if you do it smart. And it's when I say smart, like when I have somebody come in, baseball players, things like that. It's making the parents, it's making the coach understand that my job as a strength coach is not to make them a great lifter, it's to make them a better baseball player. It doesn't matter if they can squat 600 pounds, if their game on the field doesn't get better, if their injury rate doesn't go down. Mm -hmm. Um, That is my job. Now, with a lifter, my job is to make them stronger. Um, you know, so yeah, strength is the point with the lifter. Strength is the point. Yeah, strength is not the point in baseball. The point is to make them a better baseball player, make their longevity better, make them their injury risk go down, and things like that. So yeah, I think learning, I think learning lifts at a young age is great. Um, and it's just being smart about it and form first. Like with all my kids, it's we earn our way up from the start. You know, you earn your way to a bar by being able to squat yourself correctly, um, Mm -hmm. and or yourself holding like a 10 pound plate, um, things like that. Right. So no, makes sense. My only concern, I guess with this would be if the coach is adding lots of the band work, uh, it sort of can control the volume, Mm -hmm. you know, with a bunch of eight year olds, you know, You, you can't be expecting something like, massive hypertrophy or something you no, know no it's again it's to aid the sport not to harm it right you know like when my my in-season stuff is totally different than my out-of-season stuff oh, my right. kids and things like that and i have to control that yeah so yeah because i mean know, he's season, on he's on multiple sports teams and yeah you know, again my only concern would be that if the coach is like no four times a week you got to hit you know the resistance bands and if he's yeah. already running his little butt off you wouldn't want to start driving this kid into way too much volume he could get no, himself hurt or you know for sure but i mean i think it's a good idea to get him started in it um well i do too you know, yeah he's in yeah. you know no right he's yeah. in do a little bit of hell do some push-ups and sit-ups and things like that you know? right yeah some basic Whatever. strength that's really changed gosh back in the day i can tell yeah. you they really i mean old textbooks would even say oh you know you're going to destroy the kids up at physio plate their growth mm-hmm. plates and you know resistance training is really contraindicated and I think we're getting a little bit more aggressive, you know, by by letting again, like you said, appropriately letting them practice that, build a little bit of muscular strength, and and get used to the lifts in a progressive way. And you know. well, the, I don't know. Part of me looks back. The one thing I look at now is our lifestyle now today compared to our lifestyle fifty years ago. Fifty years ago, these kids playing baseball would have also been working on their family farm. Today, they do nothing but sit on their butts. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Know? No, true, yeah. We need to supplement our, our lazy daily lives with some kind of activity. Yeah. You know, even the athletes now, com- comparatively, for the most part, are, are not that not that strong. That's, I, was at, I was lucky to stay at Wendler's house over the, the Arnold weekend, and he has, like, a group of eighth graders come in. He's like, none of them can do a push-up. Yeah. None of them. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> this is not good. You know, so I mean, we got to get these kids started doing something. And sure, there's outliers, and maybe this kid's an outlier, but but it's not going to hurt him to do a little bit of resistance training and learn it properly. Now, the thing is, if he has dreams of going to college, if he has dreams of of going to the major leagues, the biggest difference between a high school baseball team and a college baseball team is all of a sudden you have a strength and conditioning coach. And if you can come in there and you know how to do the lifts right, you're you're steps ahead. Way ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So, uh, Ryan, what do you just echo a little bit about what you guys were talking about yeah. there? And, um, you know, talking about it, basically doing the band resistance kind of stuff like that with an eight year old. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have any issue with that other than sort of what you echo to just making sure they're um, controlling the volume and they're kind of using it in addition to, uh, you know, supplement whatever they're doing on field and that kind of thing. So um, provided that they're not, you know, it depends on the obviously positions and those kind of things that the kids are playing, how much throwing they're doing. I really agree with what Phil was saying about pitch counts and all that kind of stuff in through there. And, you know, the bigger, the bigger issue is in through there, what you're talking about is like, we're talking about eight year old travel baseball. I mean, there's the problem in a nutshell right there. (laughs) You're eight years old and you're playing travel baseball and stuff like that. And so just the very nature of that tends to push it more towards the hyper competitive, the more, there's typically more games or they may be even playing travel on top of what they're already doing in a local league and stuff like that. So a lot of times there's, you know, there's a lot more exposure there, but, you know, provided that the band resistance exercise that they're uh, prescribing for these kids is something that they've, you know, got from a reputable source and they're not doing things that are going to further develop any sort of muscle imbalance that can just be created by, you know, doing a lot of throwing and that kind of stuff to begin with. Um, you know, it was interesting that the, uh, you know, you'd mentioned that the father said that the kid does swimming or those kind of things too. Um, you know, depending on what strokes they swim in through there, you're also going to develop some imbalances if you're doing a lot more forward crawl and butterfly and that kind of stuff yeah. and not doing as much like backstroke and things. So, if he was going to do some stuff, I would try to work on more of the exercises that are going to sort of counteract any of that type of, um, basically that flexion forward dominant internal rotation kind of, kind of movement and stuff through there. But like I said, he's eight years old. So you don't, you want to kind of make it fun, make it an enjoyable for him. I would obviously control any sort of, you know, volume or intensity and, um, to kind of further get into what you were saying with regards to how, you know, strength training seems to be more uh, more recommended in younger populations compared to what it was. And I, I, I totally agree with that, that statement that you uh, said there. And, you know, most of what I've seen about it, and you talked about the growth plates and that kind of stuff. I mean, most of these kids need to um, do sort of what what Bill was saying, you know, earn your way up. You know, you, be, you have to be able to control your body, control your motions and all those various movement patterns before you start loading uh, those joints further. And then once you do that and you have good movement patterns, then you start loading. And it's certainly not, you're not going to want to go max effort with these younger kids. You're not going to try to max them out. You're not going to do super right. low reps, you know, where you're going to be using a higher higher percentage of, the, of their uh, like one rep max stuff. You're going to kind of work on developing the good technique, the good form, try to get them a little bit of you know, volume stuff that you have to understand with training ages like that, not only chronological age, but just their training age for how long they've been training and stuff. Absolutely. A little bit of exposure is going to go a long way. So, you know, trying to, you know, we've all, we've all been in this game for years and years now and you'll see programs come up and, you know, you can, you can flip up and like I say, you can go to elite FPS or you can go to, you know, Bill's strength field stuff and you can find programs, but trying to, take a program from there that might be great for somebody who's been training for you know five ten years is going to be way too much you know volume or intensity for somebody uh that's relatively new into it so you just got to kind of 
you know, be smart with it, but hopefully, you know, you would hope that the coaches and stuff that would be working with these kids are going to have a little bit more knowledge about that other than just, you know, the parents that would be pushing it on them and saying, oh, here's a great program that I found online. Let's start doing this. Right. And then, you know, it's it's not matched to the uh, person's chronological or training age. Well, let me, ta- let me toss this out. Phil, now my bias would be not to spend too much time with the bands and, and get them actually lifting weight appropriate free weights. Uh, I agree. How long, how long would you spend with the bands before you're like, hey, guys, let's just let's just try uh, some simple barbell dumbbell stuff? Well, if they're in my gym, we wouldn't we would go to that first. Yeah. You know, they yeah. would learn how to lunge. They would learn how to squat themselves. They would learn how to do push ups. We would see if they had the ability to do a chin up. We would, you know, things like that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, I yeah. wouldn't. I mean, I suppose there'd be a place for a band if somebody was extremely weak. You know, I'd use some bands to help them do some chins. Or uh, really, I do negative chins for that. But uh, um, I don't know. My bands guess are... is what he was referring to with the band work is probably like an arm-specific program. So yeah. you're going to do, you know, internal rotations, external rotation, yeah. possibly some, you know, abduction kind of motion, right, yeah. maybe some sort of scapular retraction. So things like that that you're kind of isolating smaller little muscles with as a arm specific program but you know like i said you'd be better off than an eight-year-old you know trying to teach them the fundamental movement patterns and and that kind of thing and just really controlling the volume of what they're of what they're doing you know the amount of pitching and stuff they're doing because let's face it most eight-year-olds aren't going to be the ones that are going to have these major injuries because they can't produce enough force when they're throwing to create these injuries. But um, like I said, as they get older, if they've developed bad habits or their training isn't appropriate and then they can start producing a lot more force, that's when you're going to start overcoming, you know, the mechanical ability of those soft tissues and stuff to, uh, be able to handle right. that. Yeah, my bigger moment. concern, I think, would be the sort of overuse injury type things, like you mentioned with the swimming. Just my personal experience is this, and I'm certainly not a biomechanist or a chiropractor, right? But I had a mm-hmm. nasty, like, AC joint overuse injury. I was doing way mm-hmm. too many things. I was in the gym, I was in the pool, I was in track. Yeah. You know, and not yeah. only that, but I think it actually hurt some of the, the, the progress that the kids could mm-hmm. be making because they're just, you're, you're wearing them down to a nub. You would be my oh, concern. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, there's a, you know, in the training world and stuff, a lot of times, you know, you kind of get that, you get that more is better mentality and you got to push, push, push. I mean, you see it and not to throw CrossFitters or those kind of groups under the bus, but it's kind of like, you know, the workout's trying to be so intense to make you puke or just to make you feel like hell. And it's like, <laughs> right. and that kind of stuff. And it's like, that's, not that's going to be more detrimental long term right. than it's going to be beneficial and it's not just oh push through push through you have to be tough you know and it's like mm-hmm. no you're you're doing too much and you're going to break them down and you're going to create more injuries than you're going to prevent by right. doing the strength training and that's always the thing you got to look at and Phil kind of mentioned it earlier is like you have to look at the population what are they what are they training for you know if you're training baseball players or football players and that kind of stuff they're athletes first their sport is their thing first and as a strength coach, no matter, we love working out, we love lifting, we've been doing it for years, and our bias is, oh yeah, we want to get stronger, we want to do this, and that kind of thing, but if you're training all those people in that same vein, um, thinking that, oh, they need to get stronger and stronger, and this and this, 
and you're pushing them too hard, you're probably going to start creating more soft tissue injuries than you're actually preventing. And then you've not done your job because I always say the job of the strength and conditioning coaches and those kind of things, like don't, the first and foremost is don't screw them up. You know, don't, don't set them up for failure because um, it might manifest on the field as an injury, but it could have been created in the work in the, in the weight room. So a lot of times I think a lot of coaches just do general programming things that might be great if you're a bodybuilder or great if you're going to be a power lifter, but they're not appropriate designs for the athlete population that they're working with. Right. Perfect. I agree. Yep. Okay, good stuff. I know we have some uh, listeners, you know, and they have kids, and they probably wonder, you know, can I expose my kids to resistance training, that kind of thing. So I don't want to dwell on it too much because we've also got some hardcore people that are thinking, you know, Lowry Stevens, get to the hardcore, you know, so. <laughs> but but that's good. That's well-rounded advice, I think. I, I hope that helps the listener, and you know who you are, buddy. Um, real briefly, I'm just going to touch on two news bits. I'm Because we have Ryan with us, I'm not going to dig into the – original study that I sometimes do, but I thought this would be interesting for people. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Both of these are through the Institute of Food Technologists, so IFT.org. They have a wellness newsletter. I'll turn people on to that. Um, the first one is about chronotypes. So that's one of the things that's just a trend lately, right, is the chronobiology of eating, like when you eat and that sort of thing, and different genetic biological clocks. Um, I can tell you Dr. Nelson and I have been to some killer uh, lectures on this sort of stuff at conferences, but this one is, uh, is I'll just read you the sort of the journalist's uh, description. Morning people may make healthier food choices. A study published in Obesity, the scientific journal of the Obesity Society, suggests a person's internal clock may impact what he or she eats and their overall health. So they compared morning people with evening people, and I don't think I have to define that. We all know people who get up in the morning and they're buzzing around and other people are are struggling and they, they kind of peak later in the day. The researchers looked at data from nearly 2,000 randomly chosen people. They looked at, um, uh, sort of assessed their circadian or biological clock and, and sort of chronotyped them. You know, are you a morning person or an evening person? Uh, clear differences in both energy and macronutrients between the two chronotypes abound, it says, with morning people tending to make quote unquote healthier choices throughout the day. For example, evening types ate less protein overall and ate more sucrose in the morning. So I, I guess the maybe a take-home message here, and again, this is one study. We're not going to alter everyone's lifestyle mm -hmm. with a single paper, but um, if you're an evening person, you might want to keep an eye out for that. Make sure you get yourself some protein in the morning and um, stay away from the sugar, the, the sucrose in the morning. Um, Evening types, let's see. In the evening, the evening types ate more sucrose, fat, and saturated fatty acids. On weekends, the differences between the morning and evening type people were even more pronounced, with evening types having more irregular meals and twice as many eating occasions. Huh. It says the evening types also tended to sleep a bit worse and were less physically active overall. Well, so if you're an evening type person, maybe you could disagree with some of this, but it might be something, let's face it, psychology people are complex but this is what this is what they're you know finding statistically so the researchers concluded that for people working to lose weight for example uh, this new research may provide a compelling window into why people choose to make certain food choices throughout the day so maybe it's your uh, chronotype driving how you eat interesting and then one other one before we get to dr. Smith here uh, gluten-free diet may increase the risk of arsenic 
uh, arsenic and mercury levels. A study published in Epidemiology suggested a gluten-free diet may increase blood levels of arsenic and mercury. Um, heavy metals, of course, distributed throughout the environment and whatnot. So uh, it says gluten-free products often contain rice flour as a substitute for wheat. Rice is known to bioaccumulate certain toxic metals, including arsenic and mercury from fertilizers, soil, or water. Um, but little is known about the health effects of diets high in rice content. So these guys, what the, to kind of get at their conclusions, they used data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey and Haynes, uh, and again, looking for these links. You know, I always, I'm always hesitant when a journalist says link because usually they mean correlation. It's not causal, right? But um, yeah, they did report that people eating gluten-free diets had higher concentrations of arsenic in their urine and mercury in their blood than those who were not on a gluten-free diet. Arsenic levels were almost twice as high for people eating the gluten-free diet, and mercury levels were 70% higher. Huh. So, again, um, I'm not going to chase down all the details. If you want more, uh, Institute of Food Technologist Wellness Newsletter. And if you're on a gluten-free diet, something to keep in mind, maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay. Having said that, so, uh, Dr. Smith, let's talk about you. Uh, Obviously, you've already expressed your interest in resistance training, right? You've correct uh, medical mm -hmm. profession. Uh, how did how did it all begin for you? Oh, geez. Well, like a uh, you know, it was interesting. I kind of go back to uh, you know, I played sports all the time growing up. Um, didn't really do much lifting. My high school and that kind of thing really didn't have much of a weight room, and so really the only people that ever used anything there were the football players and. You know, I think they had like some old ratty bench and maybe one, one of those old multi-station universal kind of things. So uh, it really wasn't until I got to uh, college that I got into more of the uh, resistance training just because I had the access to it. You know, at home we had one of those old, which I think everybody had at one point, one of those old Sears plastic and uh, concrete nice. barbells and <laughs> the, uh, the bench somehow disappeared years before so you could pretty much only do what you could do standing up and so there were a lot of curls and overhead presses and all those kind of things so uh, in high school but like I said once I got to college I uh, got more into the resistance training and um, from that standpoint you know I really enjoyed it started reading more I think everybody probably picked up a copy of Muscle and Fitness at some point and started reading through there and, and learning oh, yeah. more about the, the scientific part of it. I mean, they used to have now, granted, there's a lot of a lot of fluff in there, but they used to have some pretty decent articles, you know. With I agree. Yeah. Muscle yep. physiology kind of stuff a little bit, and they had some pretty good nutrition kind of stuff. And, you know, the interesting part was that my, my dad's a pharmacist, and so... You know, I sort of grew up in that vein and seeing that, and so I had some interest in studying that once I uh, got to school. But you know, as I got more into reading about nutrition and exercise and that kind of thing, and became a lot more interested in in that approach to basically overall healthcare and and that kind of thing, as opposed to just the uh, you know sort of looking what his daily routine consisted of was you know filling a lot of prescriptions and you know they were doing minimal counseling for people and that kind of stuff so I I really started looking into switching to the exercise physiology program and I say at the time I was at Ohio State so they had a pretty good uh, pretty good department there at the time and um, unfortunately though they were very carbohydrate sensitive very carbohydrate oriented so you got a lot of stuff more 
in the vein of endurance training and marathoning and, and right. you know, yeah. eating all the carbs. And this would have been this would have been in the uh, early to mid 90s. So, you know, that was sort of the thing in the whole fitness field. Anything, you know, we're just, you know, weight gainers were, you know, had 300 grams of carbs per <laughs> serving or something, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. So it was pretty rampant at that time. And uh, so, but I was definitely very interested in that. And then as I got further along into, uh, my exercise physiology program, I actually, uh, irritated, uh, irritated a spot in my mid back, uh, working out in the summer times. I used to work at a big Pillsbury plant, uh, where I grew up at and irritated a spot in my mid back. And so my mom had suggested that I go see the, one of the chiropractor who was a neighbor of ours and. Yeah, he started talking to me and and asked me what I was studying in school. And when I told him the exercise physiology, you know, he said, you know, it's a very good background to have to uh, to get into chiropractic if you're interested in you know sports injuries, rehab, all that kind of stuff. And so I uh, I really started considering that. And my last semester at Ohio State, I had to do an internship through the exercise phys program, and I got into the program down at NASA in Houston and. While I was down there, I I found out about the chiropractic college that they had, so I started looking into that and uh, found that they had a very good program. So I ended up, you know, going to school down there, and that's kind of how I got into the chiropractic end of it. And so it's been, I mean, it's been really good. And I've always, you know, I think early on there, you know, having somebody who had an exercise phys background as well as the uh, in my chiropractic class, there were really only a couple guys that were really into you know, working out and doing all that and through there. So not, I certainly wasn't a pioneer or anything like that, but I mean, it seemed like there wasn't a lot of mixing of the, all the strength training with the chiropractic end of it quite as much as what you see uh, nowadays. So I sort of felt like, you know, with that type of a background, it was pretty good to get in through there. And like I said, with my interest in the weight training and you know, I think we all sort of probably, you know, grew up in the time where, like I said, there was muscle and fitness, but yet, you know, Muscle Media 2000 came out, and they were providing a lot of really good information at the time, and um, that sort of led into, uh, well, you guys all know TC. We've all been involved through um, T-Nation at some point, so got into that, and they, they were providing a lot of good information um, back in those days as well, and so we were all kind of involved in doing some stuff and answering questions on the site and doing all that kind of thing, so that's how I sort of got into that, and you know, through that, when I moved back home to uh, Ohio here, I, I uh, met up with Dave Tate, and so I've been an advisor for Elite for, geez, over 10, 12 years now, and I go down on the weekends and, and train with Dave down at his, uh, at the Elite Fitness Compound and stuff, so really it's been a great thing from that because it's kind of given me a lot more exposure to the, you know, the weight training and high-end Elite lifters and that kind of thing, so you've really gotten to, to uh put it all together you know so from the from the chiropractic or injury prevention standpoint to seeing what these guys are doing at the top level and the injuries they've sustained and um but then watching how you know guys like dave are able to you know break down these guys form and their and their movement when they're doing these lifts and finding weak points so it's kind of given me a little bit of a, a benefit that so i can kind of take some of that information utilize it with my patients and and all that so that's sort of a little bit of my background and through there no very cool 
uh, I'll tell you what, because I'm I'm already thinking of some questions specific to your background. So, but let's let's I'm going to handle just a few tidbits of Iron Radio news, and we're going to go to break. When we come back, everybody, we're going to talk about weight training and injury and sort of the scope of practice. Right? There's lots of uh, sort of uh, para health professionals surrounding weight training, and we're going to talk about what each of them does and sort of how they interact and whatnot. But uh, as far as uh, a couple of news tidbits, one, uh, I just want to toss this out. I think I'm remiss in doing this uh, often, except for brief periods when we do funds drives. But if you like Iron Radio, consider becoming a supporting member. Um, it's $4 a month, or you can do a single donation at ironradio.org. We're a public radio style of format. We're listener-supported. So if you like this every week, we've been doing this for nine years. So we want to keep doing that, but you know we got to keep the lights on. So please consider uh, becoming a supporting member if you can, or one-time donation. We do have some people. Uh, in fact, I just noticed uh, Jennifer, you know who you are, a little shout-out to you because she will make uh, small little regular donations and it helps. It really helps. The other thing is uh, Dr. Nelson and I are going to be in experimental biology in about four weeks. And I don't know if anybody is around the Chicago area, but that is a very cool um, event. Think of like Arnold Classic, but for nerds, you know, massive expo, <laughs> 20,000 people uh, and that sort of stuff. And I usually take a, a gaggle of students and Dr. Nelson joins in and we've actually bumped into people last year. Somebody heard my voice. I thought it was funny. And I'm like, Oh my God, it's Dr. Lowry. And I didn't expect that like in a pure nerd event, you know, but it's, yeah. I guess I'm just saying surprisingly, there's quite a few people who are, you know, sort of the meathead slash egghead type. You'd be surprised. Um, I want to give an update too, because I told everybody I would last week. Okay. I did yep. that cut thing. Uh, for my meet coming up. <clears throat> so I told everybody I'd tell them how it went um, on the radio show last weekend. So basically last Thursday I weighed in at 239.5 in the morning. That was Thursday morning. Friday morning I made it to 221.5. So what is that? That's 18 pounds. I cut 18 pounds in 24 hours. Oh. Then Saturday morning, 24 hours after that, I weighed 254. <laughs> oh, my God. So <laughs> a 33-pound shift. In 48 hours. Did you and play with the glycerol? You did. And, uh, did you try the glycerol did, stuff? Yeah, it, it seemed to work. I mean, it didn't taste bad, so I'll keep it up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I went in and hit hit my lifts, and I, I felt great. So um, I just worked up to what will be openers for this is my first meet back back after hip replacement and hamstring reattachment. So <laughs> right. Hit a 575 squat, oh. 335 bench, and a 625 deadlift. So, not bad. Like I said, I'll, I'll open there, and yeah, see how it goes. So, Ooh, good stuff, man. Yeah. It was horrible sweating. I, I was like, oh, this is this sucks. You so. know, my <laughs> exercise science students. I I use uh, you sort of as an example. I, I don't think they they maybe lived long enough, had enough experience to realize the kind of dehydration and hyperhydration that a lot of powerlifters and bodybuilders will yeah. do they're shocked by numbers like you just gave you know swings and hydration of more than uh, five I, to ten pounds you know yeah i can tell you this it's a lot worse than it was 15 years ago <laughs> being 40 and doing this i was like man this is stupid i'm sitting in a car half naked sweating like oh. if i die here somebody's gonna find me i'm gonna be a shriveled up raisin it is it's dangerous like, it, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's not exactly safe. Yeah, it's the kind of stuff that I, I understand. You know, at your level, it's you could consider that a necessity. Ugh. It's not the kind of thing you're going to recommend to a lot of 
no. you know, young people who aren't at a fairly high level. I, cause I, I could tell you the last time I competed, I was 43, and I dehydrated to the point I was laying there the night before, you know, rapid heart rate. I, I'm just I'm picturing like the viscosity of my blood, like the physiologist mm -hmm. in me is making it worse, you know. I'm thinking, yes. oh dear God, you know, and I know why I'm, I'm, you know, sort of tachycardic like this, and I'm like, oh God, and you're right, and it, and it, it kind of, not hurts, but you know, it's more uncomfortable when you're older. Yeah, and maybe because your tissues and are I less think hydrated. I it, just because I was smart enough to think about what's actually going on inside me, I'm like, my resting heart rate is 150. See, this yeah, is not, not good. Plasma volume so. way down. Yeah, <laughs> right. So anyway, yeah. Anyways, that's what happened. So yeah. Oh, good stuff. Yeah, we'll have to talk more about that next week, too, I think. I get some gory details. Okay, let's go to break. When we come back, we're going to um, have a, just a big discussion with uh, Dr. Smith about, again, lifting and injuries and all the, the people who help with that. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everyone, we are back. It's Phil and Lonnie, and we have Dr. Ryan Smith with us, and we're going to talk about weightlifting and injuries and sort of scope of practice and that sort of thing. Um, first question I'll, I'll pose to uh, Ryan here. Uh, 
do strength coaches tend to overstep their bounds? I mean, whether it's their fault or not, are they expected to do everything from massotherapy to be an athletic trainer or, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, Do they overstep? Well, I mean, I hate to, I mean, I'm not going to generalize a whole group of Oh, I I get it, I get it. Definitely, I mean, there there are some, and it probably depends on their situation and what type of teams or what type of facilities and stuff they're working in. You know, I can see that, you know, people that are, that are coaches at maybe smaller colleges where there isn't as much, you know, ancillary medical providers and, and all that stuff through there. And, you know, the thing that you have to remember with, uh, you know, trainers is they're probably the first person that's dealing with these athletes. And so as such, they really develop a lot of uh, rapport and trust with those people. And so the athletes are probably going to be the first point of contact to start and say, Hey coach, I'm having this problem or having that. And so, you know, they, I think in those situations, if they don't have a training support or where they feel like they're going to have to refer them out of the building or refer them out of the program to try to get some other type of advice, you know, they may be a little bit more reluctant to send them out just because they want to try to keep everything in house. You know, if you're a big program, like I said, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, they've got Ohio state, uh, Buckeyes there. And so, I mean, those guys have, you know, 10 strength coaches and they've got all the trainers and they've got medical staff and they've got all that through there. But, you know, there's probably, um, there's probably a role in through there where some of those coaches in smaller programs and that kind of stuff probably feel feel the need to try to do a little bit more. Um, now, whether or not we're talking then strength coaches that have like their own training facilities and those kind of things too. I mean, I've definitely seen a trend, and you'll see it. I mean, you see people posting stuff. I mean, on social media all these times with, you know, you're seeing strength coaches posting videos of them doing some sort of soft tissue work on a client or they're doing other type of, I've even seen some that'll put stuff out there where they're doing like joint mobility, kind of joint mobilization kind of stuff. And, you know, those are, those are kind of, you know, really slippery slopes you run into there because depending on the state, and I'm certainly not an expert on what every state's statutes are with hands-on actually doing myofascial work and therapy and, you know, um, on people, but, like I know in Ohio for chiropractic anyway. Now chiropractic, I mean, is a wide scope of what you're able to do. But you know, if you if you're like stepping outside of your boundaries as a you know, say a strength coach, you start uh, doing adjustments on your stuff. I mean, it's a felony. I mean, it's a it's a felony crime in Ohio uh, if you're holding yourself out and you're doing those kind of things. And so. Um, there's certainly I've noticed in the last few years is there is a lot more of a trend for coaches and personal trainers to to be doing a lot of this kind of stuff and um, I really think that some of it there's some negligence negligence involved and maybe a little bit of ignorance in that they don't necessarily know that what they're doing isn't on the up and up you know so yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the biggest thing that I see, I mean, I think it's great as a whole that there, that a lot of these trainers and a lot of coaches are starting to think more along the lines of injury prevention and, you know, to trying to, trying to protect their athletes and, and prevent injuries because, you know, like we talked about it briefly earlier where a lot of times the training programs and all that kind of stuff that 
people would be given in the past would be more you know injury inducing kind of things and stuff so um, it's great that I that a lot of these people are thinking along those terms I just think they should really instead of getting in there and trying to do a lot of the hands-on myofascial work and the therapy themselves which pretty much oversteps in most states and does constitute you know a criminal offense if you're actually doing it um, the other part of it is even if it's not a criminal offense is it does open you up to a lot of liability right. uh, if you don't have some sort of malpractice insurance that if you do create some type of an injury and stuff you really open not only yourself but whatever facility you work in opens them up to a lot of uh, liability so that's why I tend to have them avoid trying to do that kind of stuff on their own but I fully support them trying to focus on injury prevention stuff more along the lines of you know what the this the funny thing is you'll sometimes and not all of the trainers but sometimes you'll see these trainers and they're doing some of this myofascial stuff and then you'll see them move on and start doing their workouts with their clients and you're watching their clients do this exercise and you're like why the hell are you having some 55 year old person doing box jumps or why are you having you know why are you having them do this exercise that form is horrendous and stuff like that so here you are trying to overstep and do myofascial work for stuff but then you're programming is crap. So it's like <laughs> what I would focus on is really for the coaches and the trainers that are interested in those kind of things. It's like develop a good network where you can, you know, find a good chiropractor that does manual therapy or some massage therapist that's really good. You know, a physical therapist, um, even nutrition. You know, having these issues, but yeah. really focus on your programming and stuff. And so, you know movement quality try to get people moving well you know look at how you're loading them what is the you know what type of volume what is your intensity um you know are these exercises that you're having them do appropriate for what they are because not everybody works with high-end athletes you know most of these trainers and and coaches are just working at general people off the street that are just wanting to get stronger get endurance stay fit you know have good body composition and so it's like you might think that deadlifting, you know, really heavy is the best thing ever, and that's great, but, you know, I don't have a problem with everybody doing some form of deadlift, but do they have to train it like a power lifter, or could they maybe do, you know, what is their motion quality, what's their movement, are they have any issues that maybe they would be better off doing like a trap bar deadlift as hey, opposed to a regular if I can, let me ask you then, because th this is one of the questions that we're sort of veering toward, which is, you mentioned like myofascial release and some of the other things. And again, I don't want to point a finger just at strength coaches, right? Because this is probably more of a problem with people. There's a, there's like 300, 400 different personal training certs out there, you know, and oh, and they don't have the network. And and I'm I'm very understanding of that. And like I said, nutrition, same thing in the state of Ohio. It's it's strictly regulated. You know, practicing dietetics without a license is a, a crime, essentially. And even if it's just a, it would amount to a fine, you don't want to do that coming out of college. Or even if you haven't gone to college, you got yourself a legitimate personal training certificate like the CPT uh, from the mm -hmm. National Strength Conditioning Association or whatever. And I, you're right. I don't think they're always aware of when they could make a referral or they're drifting into a different scope of practice. Sure. But sure. what about, you mentioned movement a couple of times. Where do you stand on functional movement screens? Because I see trainers and coaches doing this a lot. And where would that drift into physical therapy or make the referral to a chiropractor? You know what I mean? 
Yes, and uh, you know, obviously, Gray Cook and the functional movement screen was the first one, and that was probably geez, 10, 12 years ago when that thing first started uh, making its rounds through the training industry. And obviously, Gray is a physical therapist, so he was coming at it from that background uh, originally. And so, you know, those kind of things, if you're evaluating movement quality um, and you're just looking to see if somebody is appropriate to do a certain exercise or a movement, um, you know, I think that's well within the scope of, of what a trainer or a strength coach <clears throat> can do uh, through there. Obviously, if there is, obviously, if they're doing any, like you start to go through the screen and you're watching them do a squat pattern or you're watching them do some of these and they're reporting that, oh man, that really hurts when I do that. That's definitely not something then that you're going to want to say, okay, then why don't you just lay down over here? Let me just rub that area a little bit, or let me just start engaging in all these different stretches and things without doing a full, um, you know, orthopedic assessment, neurologic assessment, all those kind of things, taking a full history on it, finding out um, what other things could be contributing to it. So I think that kind of stuff would go beyond the scope of what most coaches and trainers can do. Now, that said, sure, there's coaches that have been out there for, you know, 20 years and they're brilliant and they, they have the capabilities to do it, but then that still gets into the legality of it. So, I mean, I'm certainly not trying to say that, you know, I don't have some big ego about this that, oh, well, they're not, you know, these guys aren't smart enough to do this kind of thing. And, that, and that's not it at all. Some of them are no, brilliant right. and they have so much experience and they can break things down so much more than your average clinician can when it comes to the lifting mechanics and the movements and all that stuff. But, you know, I think it's kind of funny in this day and age and you scroll through social media or whatever and everything, all these videos are, oh, let's biohack this or let's hack this thing. Well, you can't hack the educational process and the licensing process. You know, if you have to have a license to do these things, you can't just go take a weekend certification and say, okay, well, they gave me a certificate to to do this, therefore I'm qualified. It's like, no, you're you're not qualified to do that. You've been certified in something, but that's that means nothing, a certificate, and that really means nothing when you come from the legality standpoint of it. So while it's nice to have and say you have those, you know, there's a difference between a certificate and a license. So you can't just hack that educational process and hack the licensing process and stuff. So that's the issue that you'll see is that everybody seems like they want to do this and get the information quickly and not go through, unfortunately, all the hoops you have to jump through in order to be able to legally do those things. So right, right. that's the issue I see. It's not a matter of whether these people are qualified or have the capabilities to learn how to do it. It's just if you really want to do those things, then go get the background that you need to be able to do it legally. And, yeah. you know, the easiest thing for somebody who's a trainer, you know, if you just want to do some hands-on myofascial stuff is you can go to you know, massage therapy school and those programs aren't that long and they're not that expensive. So that would probably be the, the quickest way to obtain some sort of a license to do the hand-on thing in addition to what you're doing as a strength coach or a trainer. You know, you brought up a good point that we just had this discussion in the classroom literally yesterday. I always tell people, think license law, right? It's literally written into Correct. your state law. Certificates Correct. are not literally a legal scope of practice, right? And there are certain things to, to protect right. the public, different mm -hmm. state, state by state. They're like, hey, you know, here's the scope. Like in, in nutrition, people drift into that a lot. Uh, yep. And 
it, it, the Ohio Board of Dietetics says if you are assessing someone, like it's one thing to say people like you tend to benefit from a scoop of whey protein after you lift. Nobody's going to stop you from doing that. But when you start Correct. saying you weigh yep. this much and at mm -hmm. 0.8 grams per kg, here's what you should eat and here are the food sources, now you're getting prescriptive. And I think a lot of trainers and even a lot of coaches, they might not be familiar with that. Like at what point do – you know they're not going to go scour the uh, Ohio Assembly or what, what have you uh, and, and look for this these scopes of practice. They're going to hopefully have some sense – I feel uncomfortable now. I'm going to make this referral. You know, the functional movement screen triggered something, or this guy has unintentional weight loss of 20 pounds this football season. I better make mm. a referral, you know, that kind right. of stuff. It's, it's like yeah, I always say, definitely. like with a, with a dentist, I don't want an unlicensed dentist poking around in my mouth. I don't care if he went, got right. a certificate on the weekend and something, you know. So you got to oh, decide oh. where that lies, I think, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it's interesting in that, you know, like I said, not that, not that the, uh, you know, I think that, and whether it's going to move towards it or not at some point, because, you know, a lot of times, like we were talking, you know, strength coaches or trainers, those might be the person's first point of contact yes. for their health and fitness kind of stuff. And so that might be the only person that they're seeing. And so as a first point of contact, I mean, you have a very important role in trying to recognize that, okay, this person, this person has more issues than what I'm technically qualified to do. And, you know, maybe I need to refer them here. I need to refer them there. Or don't, at, you know, don't take your role and what you do lightly and think that, oh, all I am is a trainer. All I am is a trainer. No, you could be this person's first port of contact. And if you're providing nutritional advice and you're providing exercise advice and all that stuff, I mean, that's huge because you know, obviously every study and everything that comes out for disease prevention and just management of things, it's all diet and exercise. You know, everything I get into from a back pain, neck pain, all that, you know, every study that comes out, exercise is playing a key role in that. So you can't discount the importance of what the people are doing. And I think sometimes maybe that's what sort of pushes them to go beyond their scope is because whether they feel like, you know, for some reason what they're doing is it, it expands them out and makes them feel like they're participating more in that process. But it's like realize that what you're doing on a fundamental level is one of the most important things that people can do on a daily basis to help to maintain their health and well-being. Yeah, you and know so what? Uh, case in point, uh, when I, I would teach strength conditioning, right? And my background was mm -hmm. bodybuilding. I don't have to be an expert in the Olympic lifts, right? So I would Correct. say, guys, I'm not a strength conditioning specialist. You know, in fact, mm -hmm. I even had Phil come guest lecture at times to some of my seniors when I started feeling uncomfortable about, you know, listen, we're going to talk about programming and this and that. And I mean, as an exercise, I have my doctorate in exercise physiology. I understand a lot right. of these different periodization Absolutely. models, but coaches can look at cues and pick up on things and deal with some of the, the necessary, almost, you know, behavioral changes that need to be made, you know, and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's very valuable, uh, to, yeah, like you said, to understand that you are playing, playing a me meaningful role in this. Phil has that same kind of approach as sort of a general rule, you know, which is... Mm -hmm. I feel like, uh, you know, my role, I'm not a massotherapist, you know, I'm mm -hmm. not going to treat your injuries and I'm okay with that. That's not what I do, you yeah. know? So, yeah. Yeah. It makes well, sense. and like I said, a lot of times, a lot of people, depending on what they're coming in with, I mean, you're, 
your role should be to help prevent the injuries in the first place through proper programming, proper, proper, uh, you know, using good form, good volume, good tensing, good exercise selection. You know, just because you have a favorite lift or you have a thing that you like doesn't mean it's appropriate for every person. And like I said, a lot of times, you know, some of these coaches, I think that that uh, depending on the population that you train, you know, it gives you a little more leeway. Like you'll say you're working with a younger, you know, teenage to 20, early 20s crowd, you know, you're going to you can get away with a lot more crappy programming. Uh, than what you're going to be able to do if you're training people in their 40s or 50s just because of the wear and tear that's accumulated over the years. I mean, I think you and I are probably fairly close in age and stuff. So, I mean, the things that we could have done just training-wise when we were in our 20s that you're like, oh, that wasn't a good idea. And, man, that kind of hurt. And then three (laughs) days later, you're better and you feel 100%. Now all of a sudden, you know, you're you're like, oh man, now they're not going to be able to do that for the next six weeks. You know, that's you know? a really so, good that's a really good point. I keep seeing these videos lately about uh, they're all over YouTube, and maybe it's because mm-hmm. you know the ad tracking is seeing my fitness involvement or something. But Correct, all this yeah. about get ripped over fifty. Why you why men over fifty? And they they show these older guys with the gray hair posing and stuff. And oh yeah, it, but oh, yeah. you're great point because a lot of my students they don't. I have to keep reminding them they don't always realize that you guys are used to working with like the 90th percentile in everything because they poke and prod each other in lab. You know, oh, right, you know, they right. see somebody who's 16% body fat and they're like, this guy's a slob. And I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, or no, this, this guy can't even bench, you know, uh, double his body weight. No, he can't. Mm-hmm. He's 60. Oh, no, you yeah. know, <laughs> stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh, yeah. No, I had a, uh, you know, I had a lady that she's in her 60s and, uh, she uh, was working with a trainer in the gym and stuff, and you know he was having her do you know heavy deadlifts where she was. I mean, she, she was, and she liked it because it made her feel like she was you know like king strong woman or whatever. But she was going well over two hundred pounds with a with a deadlift, and you know when I would see her, she has like minimum like her hips you know you take her through the range of motion and stuff i mean she's got significant degenerative change in there because her range of motion is is horrible and stuff but she would come in with knee pain or this pain or other stuff and you're like well why do you want to keep doing those deadlifts that way and stuff because mechanically your joints won't even get you in a position to allow you to do the lift properly so Mm -hmm. it's like i think there's a lot of you know ego involved in lifting a lot and just uh stuff but it's like you gotta you gotta pick the right exercises for the right people and just because you know i don't like i said i don't have a problem with people deadlifting and all that kind of stuff i think it's i mean you need to do it just because there's so much of your daily routine you're going to have to bend down to pick stuff up you're going to need to move stuff around your house carry things so i'm i'm big into those lifts that have a lot of carry over to your daily activities i've got I've got two questions for you. One, I'm going to challenge you, and one, it would be fun. So here's the challenge, okay? Sure. And you might not feel any challenge by this at all, and I, I don't mean it. I'm not attacking you in any way. It's something I generally am not clear on myself. Again, I'm not a biomechanist. I'm not an athletic trainer. Um, where do you see chiropractic fitting with athletic training and physical therapy? Because I don't I, – I think a lot of times, like the trainers at the university – um, mm-hmm. being that first line and you're right even in nutrition I actually have some um, a couple of papers peer-reviewed papers that say athletic trainers they get like 70% of the nutrition questions the dietitians don't always like to hear that but they're on the right. bus 
with the athletes, you know, stuff like that. But so um, if I consider traditional medical treatment, you know, the, the trainer identifies something, they refer it to the physician and then maybe maybe physical therapy. Where do you see mm -hmm. chiropractic fit in with with that? Is it parallel to that model? Is it a branch off of that model? No, I think that I mean everybody. Everybody within that um, can provide can provide value to the athlete. Um, I think what you're seeing in this day and age is that there's more and more expansion of uh, sort of scope and approach from all those different groups that you mentioned. Um, like, you know, when I was when I was in undergrad and when I was going through chiropractic college, you know. Um, most physical therapy programs were just, you know, bachelor level programs. Um, and then all of a sudden they've required the DPT in a lot of places. So now they're doctorate level. And so they're getting deeper into the, they're getting deeper into all the um, treatment approaches and stuff where, you know, it didn't used to be that many uh, physical therapists would do a lot of um, what we would consider like an adjustment or joint mobilizations as much, you know, you, you tended to see a lot of physical therapists that would do a lot of, you know, post-surgical rehab on people. So they were doing a lot more of the modalities like the ultrasound, the electric stem, you know, stretches, some strengthening, band work, all that kind of stuff. But you're seeing more and more with their education improving um, the same way that you know, I think chiropractic has really taken a big step in at least where I went, where I went to school, and when I went to school, it was very, uh, it was very uh, heavily all the all the science and clinical sciences were heavily promoted, and um, they had a lot of intern type programs. You know, it used to be that I think I still think to a lot degree the uh, you know chiropractic is very well known for treating a lot of spinal uh, kind of stuff, so back pain, neck pain, headaches, and stuff. A lot of people don't realize that we actually do you know, knees, ankles, feet, elbows, shoulders, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, mm -hmm. heck, I've even had patients that have come in with uh, back issues in the past, and then they'll come back in, you know, later on, and they'll start telling me, oh, I was going to physical therapy for my shoulder. It's like, I didn't even know you had a shoulder problem. And they're like, oh, I didn't realize that you did stuff with shoulders. And it's like, well, you know, so there is a lot of, there is a lot, I think, of complementary kind of stuff, or we'll do similar kind of things, you know, um, depending on the extremity work. I still don't know how much um, actually like the adjustment type mobilization that um, that like physical therapy does compared to chiropractic. But, you know, there's just an article that came out this past month and it was by the uh, American College of Physicians in the, uh, I believe it was Annals of Internal Medicine where they were doing a uh, their guidelines for back pain and stuff like that and their first line recommendation along with exercise and, and physical therapy kind of stuff was spinal manipulation and, and um, that kind of stuff because they're really trying to say that you know most of the studies on these all these medications and obviously we know that the opioid uh, problem has gotten gotten way out of hand yeah, especially so, big here in ohio right yeah oh my goodness yeah it's it's sad really i mean and i just saw a thing i mean obviously that problem with that is is the pills lead to heroin and heroin leads to this heroin laced with fentanyl and then you know they were just an article in the Columbus Dispatch about how you know there's a death every day you know right. uh, yep. Uh, yep. you know with the stuff with the fentanyl in it and stuff and so it's just crazy and it's sad to see because I mean the nice thing is with these guidelines you would hope that that would lead to more referrals from their primary care physicians because a lot of times primary care physicians are the first level of contact of 
a patient with back pain, neck pain, headache, whatever. And, and I'm certainly not going to stereotype a whole group, but a lot of times the training that your primary care doctor has for a lot of these musculoskeletal problems is very minimal. And so, you know, they don't have the training to do anything other than, you know, prescribe the medication or refer them out to physical therapy or whatever. So I'm hoping that with a lot more of these guidelines saying, you know, the first line is do not prescribe these medications, send them to therapy, send them for chiropractic, um, that that will lead to more of a shift away from some of that because it's a very slippery slope. And I mean, all the studies show, I mean, especially with back pain and that kind of stuff is like, you have to get moving, you have to do exercise, you have to try to, uh, you have to try to improve that and just sitting around or taking medications, it's just going to become, lead to more of a chronic thing. And then, like you said, if you're taking the opioids, you know, eventually, um, that's going to create more problems than it's trying to fix. So, but from an athletic standpoint is, I mean, really, I think everybody needs to work together and, and do what they're, do what they're best at, you know, like, so if I was saying, you know, going to work with a college team or I was going to work with a, uh, you know, a professional team in some standpoint like that. It's like, you know, chiropractic still get the best training as far as the spinal manipulation, okay, yeah. um, spinal mechanics and stuff like that. So, you know, a lot of back pain stuff, I think if their person are having those kind of issues, um, there is a lot more of a cross thing. And just like me as a chiropractor, I'm not limited to just doing the spinal manipulation. You know, in my office, I have cold laser, I've got stem, I've got ultrasound, I've got a traction table, you know, I do active release kind of stuff. I do rehab exercises with people. Ohio just started to allow us to do the, uh, the dry needling. Um, oh, right. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so we can do, we can do all those kind of things. It's just a matter of working, working with everybody. And then, like I said, if you can, uh, if you can develop a good uh, rapport with the other providers and stuff, that's really the best thing. And, you know, I think it would be great and there's more places that are going to it, but I mean, it would be really great if you had more of these multidisciplinary clinics, you know, where everybody is under one roof. And, um, you know what, my, my take on that has really been, I think it's kind of saying the same thing, but it's awareness and it's mutual respect. You know, you have to be able to respect colleagues that they can do something like you said. No one person is omnipotent and so, right. you know, omniscient. Yep. So have the respect yep. to make the referral. You know, it's like that's Absolutely. not what I'm all about. I, I didn't specialize in that. But, hey, let me ask you one last question because we're out of time and I want to mm-hmm. – your own personal lifting, has it informed uh-huh. your practice and if so, how? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's like, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, because like I said, I just mentioned sort of with chiropractic having such a wide scope and, and all the different treatments and therapies that we're able to provide. Um, you know, there's a lot of chiropractors that don't have a background like me that, you know, they may just come into the room, assess the person and adjust them and do that spinal manipulation and then, you know, send them out the door. Uh, you know, what I do is I actually spend more time on my patients actually doing a lot of myofascial work than I actually do the adjustment. The adjustment, I can adjust somebody in in five minutes, but I may spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes or more uh, going through and doing some of that soft tissue, either active release, myofascial, you know, trigger point work, you name it, on the areas 
surrounding there that can be contributing to the problem because I mean so much of what we see during the day and we didn't really get into it too much but you know a lot of the back pains neck pains it isn't it isn't due to just one injury you know yeah there's car accidents or if you're talking about lifting you know you could drop the weight on you you know you could slip out of your hand and crush your chest or whatever you're doing but more often than not the injuries and stuff that we see are more cumulative in nature people want to go and just only look at their workouts like why is this hurting or what you know it's like well until we correct some of those problems that you're doing all day long and getting that postural strain off of there basically what you're doing is you're robbing from your ability to work out or be able to tolerate those those loading forces so if i'm loading those areas up all day sitting and then i go to the gym and further load it well now you've just overcome what your body's able to tolerate and now you've got an injury you're making a mistake if you don't address the postural strain repetitive stresses of the daily routine uh, because like I said you know they may go to the gym and exercise for an hour you know then you're spending how long eight hours or more at work you know and then it's not just when you're at work what are you doing at home what positions are you sleeping in is that going to further aggravate it so you kind of take that whole holistic approach to we've got to get the stresses and the pressures off these areas if we want them to heal inevitably you know it's going to end up creating a worse problem if you don't uh modify things so, okay. so that's sort of the approach that uh that i take to it no okay yeah oh. good stuff well i'll tell you what we are out of time so thanks for joining us i really appreciate it yeah no i, I really enjoyed it so um yeah maybe we'll we'll tap you in the future if it's okay for a specific you know because it sounds like there's so many specific um you know oh yeah, yeah. common no, injuries you know seem- yeah no, there really, there, there really is, and I, I would, uh, you know, no, I'd be really happy to do that and love to do that. Like I said, if you get people that uh, want to listen to this and they come in and they have specific questions and stuff, yeah, I'd love to come back on and do that and, you know, try to educate people a little bit on the process and kind of how I approach things. And because, uh, like I said, it felt like we gave a lot of overview of how things work and tie together, but not uh, delved into a lot of the specifics. And if people are interested in certain topics or uh, or anything more in depth on a certain issue I'd be glad to come on and, and, and go over that because it's always fun to sit there and talk to people who have a lot of uh, have a lot of the same interest and have a lot of things and, and really help those and my I, I like to work with <clears throat> excuse me people that are into the weight training injuries kind of stuff good stuff all right everyone well we'll catch up with you uh, next week take care Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. 
protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.